Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. That's where we left off last time. Um, Really excited about the Bible study in Exodus. I'm learning more and more as I study. Uh, Verse 1, this is going to be Moses and Aaron's first encounter with the king of Egypt after Moses returns back to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, before I get into this, there's something that that we haven't read, but I, I want you to think about sometimes you have a need in your life or you need an answer in your life. So in this passage, we see that Aaron and Moses are together. But you know in Scripture, Moses has been gone for about 40 years. We, we don't have a record of, of an encounter with his family in that 40 years. Uh, we don't even know if the family knows where he's at. Maybe so, not for sure. We're pretty sure that Moses didn't go back to Egypt because he's a wanted man. You know, his uh, picture's hanging up in the post office in uh, Cairo or somewhere. You know, he's wanted for murder. But this is what the Lord does. When Moses, last time I taught, gave all the excuses of why he can't go back to Egypt, you know, he can't speak very well, and he's given all the excuses. And the Lord's not really happy with him because of those excuses. And he says, doesn't your brother Aaron, you know, can't he speak for you? So what the Lord does, he speaks to both parties unbeknownst to each one. So while Moses is in Midian, the Lord is also speaking to Aaron, who's still in Egypt. And he says, your brother is in the wilderness. He said, you need to go meet him. So isn't it true that sometimes that you don't know if God's working on the other end? And yet he really is. And sometimes we think, God, you know, do you know what I need? You know, do you know what's going on here? And the Lord knows. So he's working on both parties unbeknownst to each one, and then they get together. Uh, One of the great illustrations of that, I think, is in the life of Abraham. If you can remember, he's taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and he's thinking about what the Lord had commanded him to do. And as they go up one side, we use this, you know, in an illustrative way. As he goes up one side with his son Isaac, there is a sacrifice coming up the other side of the mountain, not really known to Abraham. So when Abraham needs a sacrifice, God's already got one on the mountain waiting for him. And that's the God we serve, right? It's just awesome. Verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert, sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work, get back to your labor? And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor." So he's wanting them to work. They're building you know, the cities, the infrastructure for Egypt. 
with slave labor. Verses 6 through 17, Pharaoh increases the work on the Hebrews that are in captivity. He tells the taskmasters, or those who oversee the slave, to quit providing the straw for the bricks. And now the Egyptians are no longer providing the straw for the bricks, but they expect the brick quota to remain the same. So now they're not only making the bricks, but they also have to go get the straw. And uh, that's something that uh, is going to be problematic for them. So I, I brought a picture. We're going to put it on the screen. This is a wooden model from a, an Egyptian tomb about 1991 to 1778 B.C. And this is a model of them making bricks in ancient Egypt. And so you have three slave workers. You have a mold for the brick. You can see that. And this model is in the British Museum. And it's ancient. You can tell it's almost 2,000 years B.C. And this shows the process of them making bricks. And you can see some of the bricks already made, and they're drying in the sun. And the bricks were made from the clay along the, the, the riverbank of the Nile. And they would add straw to the bricks to for two things. Number one, to strengthen the bricks, and also the straw would make the bricks dry quicker. The straw would uh, absorb some of the water. So we, we do have historic records of this brick making. Obviously, there's the model that they found. And the reaction of the Hebrews to Moses when he goes back and asks Pharaoh to let them go Verse 20, then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses, this is the, the Hebrews and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So it, it almost seems like they're saying, you're making this worse on us. You're not making it better, you're making it worse. Verse 22 this is Moses' response to God now. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on these people, on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. So what he's saying is, God, this is making things worse. You ever prayed for something for God to fix and then it got worse? You think, what's up with that? And that's what they're feeling. They're thinking, you know, Moses, you're putting this, us into a bad situation. What you're trying to do is making it worse. Now we go to chapter 6, and God is going to respond back to Moses. So we have the Hebrews respond. Well, let me back up. We have Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron. Then the Hebrews response to Moses. Moses responds to God. Now God's going to respond to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers, and I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians, the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. Now, there's a few observations that I think in these passages we need to get. Verse number two, 
He says, I am the Lord. Most of your Bibles will have L-O-R-D in capital uh, letters. And that means the word Jehovah or the title Jehovah. Um, I am Jehovah, which means the existing one, which is similar to what he said. My name is I am that I am. I, I just am. I'm the existing one. Verse 3, he said, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, which is the, uh, the title El Shaddai. Most of you have heard that, which means Almighty God or the God who supplies. And they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not know me as Jehovah. I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, and I have remembered my covenant. So he says, okay, I made this covenant all the way back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know 400 years have passed, but I still remember what I promised, and I'm going to keep my promise. Now, when I went back to look at just the names, he said they did not know me as the L-O-R-D, capital Jehovah. They knew me as El Shaddai, Elohim, you know, different titles. So one of the things that I did, I went back, and when you read the Bible, you'll, you'll see the word there. But please understand, when Genesis and Exodus is written, it's written after the events. So they did know the name of the Lord when they wrote the, the Pentateuch, or the first five books, and it's ascribed to Moses. So even though they use the terms, it means that they literally did not know the name at the moment of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though the title is in there when you read the book. Does that make sense? So it's like you're, you're writing history from history past and not current events. And even though we read it, it's almost like it's current, but it's something that is being transcribed afterwards. So verse 6, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll rescue you from their bondage. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. With great judgments, I will take you as my people. I'll be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Now I'll bring you into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of their spirit and the cruel bondage, certainly, that they were under. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke, verse 12, before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips, or I don't speak well. Some people have interpreted that, that Moses may have stuttered a little bit, or he had some kind of impediment. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that Moses doesn't feel like he can speak in a way that Pharaoh will hear him. Verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel, for Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In verses 14 through 27, we have the genealogy and the family of Moses and Aaron listed. So they go through the genealogy. Verse 28 through 30, And it came to pass that on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So he's reminding the Lord twice, I don't speak well. How many think the Lord got it the first time? Okay. So now we're at chapter 7, 
So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs, my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So this is one of the first times as we see the, the macro or the large view of God for the Hebrews, which have multiplied literally to thousands and thousands. So we know that Abraham was a friend of God, and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God is saying to an entire nation, the Hebrews, he said, you're going to be my people. And you're going to be my chosen people, my special people. And he will reiterate that later. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we know that Aaron was three years older than Moses. And so Moses begins his ministry at 80. So the Lord's waiting for him to grow up so he could begin his ministry at 80. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the, the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Now, we don't know from this passage the names of the sorcerers that were in Pharaoh's court. But is, if we go fast forward to the New Testament, we, we get some names, and this is going to be found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Some of you know this, some of you may not know this. So I'm going to begin at the beginning of chapter 3, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, make captive of gullible or silly women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so did these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So if you look there in the passage, in verse number 8, we have two names. Do you see it? Janus and Jambres, or Jambres, uh, 
I've heard it pronounced both ways. So Hebrew tradition says these are the names of the magicians or the sorcerers that were in Pharaoh's court. Now what we, what we know about them is very little, and the only time their name is mentioned in the Bible is there by Paul in his letter to Timothy. Now, where did Paul get those names? Well, we think he got those from Jewish history or the, the Jewish Talmud. And also there's an apocryphal writing. It's called the book of Janus and Jambres, which is a, a book about them. Now, that term, apocryphal, means two things. We don't know who the author is, and we really don't know if it's true. So uh, that's kind of the definition. It may be true. We're not for sure. We, we can't verify that. So that's why we, we think that uh, there are some historical things that Paul had known and was exposed to before he wrote that. Also, these people are referred to in the history of Josephus. Now, Josephus does not give them by name, but in chapter 13, in, in the third part of that chapter, I just want to read a, a, a section of this, and some of you know who Josephus is. He's a Jewish historian about the first century, and he's going back and he's writing the history of the Jews is basically what it's called. But when the king derided Moses, he made him in earnest see the signs that were done at Mount Sinai. So evidently Moses had told Pharaoh the Lord gave him signs on the Mount of God, which we read earlier. Yet was the king very angry with him and called him an ill man who had formerly run away from his Egyptian slavery and has now come back with deceitful tricks and wonders and magical arts to astonish him. When he had said this, he commanded the priest to let him see the same wonderful sights as knowing that the Egyptians were skillful in the, this kind of learning and that he was not the only person who knew them and pretended them to be divine, as also he told him when he brought such wonderful sights before him. He would only be believed by the unlearned. Now when the priests threw down their rods, they became serpents. But Moses was not daunted at it and said, O king, I do not uh, myself despise the wisdom of the Egyptians, but I say... That what I do is so much superior to what these do by magic, arts, and tricks, as divine power exceeds the power of man. But I will demonstrate what I do is not done by craft nor counterfeiting, uh, what is not really true, but what they appear by the providence and the power of God. And when he had said this, he cast down his rod down upon the ground and commanded it to turn itself into a serpent, and it obeyed him. And went, all, and went all around and devoured the rods of the Egyptians, which seemed to be dragons, until it had consumed them all. Then it returned to its own form, and Moses took it up into his hand. So that's the account of Josephus. So Josephus says that when the, the Egyptians threw down their rods, not only did they appear as serpents, but he said they also appeared as dragons. So I went back and looked at some of the historical artwork and, of course, this is just you're surmising by the artist. And some of them actually have pictures of dragons, you know, small, what would have something look like a dragon. And so Moses' serpent goes around and eats up all of their dragons. So quite uh, marvelous, isn't it? Now, when I think about this, and we, we've talked about this earlier, 
course, there's a lot of magic. You know, we see things on television, programs, shows, um, you know, Las Vegas or uh, Branson or wherever you might go to see someone do magic tricks. But I personally believe there is a dark power that does uh, feats and wonders and signs that are absolutely real, but they're by a demonic power. I think the Bible teaches this. I think we see it here. I think we see it also in the book of Revelation. Because one of the reasons, now think about this. If there is a man of sin, so we're kind of going from Exodus to Revelation here, but I think you'll understand why. If there's a man of sin that's going to be a person who's over the world, and he's going to control the known world at um, the last days, he's called the son of perdition, He's called the man of sin. He's called the beast or the antichrist. And we know the number of his name, which is what? 666. So why would people believe him? Well, one of the reasons is because he and the high priest, or what we would call the lamb that had horns, which would be the priest of the, or the false prophet of, of the beast or the man of sin, one of the ways they deceive people is with signs and wonders. Um, they're going to make fire come down from heaven. Uh, he's going to apparently be assassinated or killed some way, and he's going to come back to life. Now, whether he's really dead or not, I'm going to say he's not, but it's going to appear that he's dead, and he's going to seemingly come back to life. Guess who he's imitating? Yeah, he's imitating Jesus. Now, and this is the reason. You see, the devil can't create anything, and he can't produce anything new. So all he has to do is imitate and replicate because he's not a creator. He is a created being, and a created being can't create in the sense of, of God. And so now he is replicating, and he's becoming what we would say is a false Christ. And let's kind of pin that down a little closer. He's becoming a false Messiah. So if Jesus died and resurrected from the dead and that's legitimate, he's going to try to replicate that, and he's going to do signs and wonders through dark, you know, demonic powers because he gets his power from the dragon, and the Bible identifies the dragon as the devil. So people are going to wonder after him, and they're going to follow him because of the miracles of the signs and the wonders that, uh, that he does. So now, back to Egypt, they're actually doing real signs and wonders, but it's by a different power. And so the Bible records this, Josephus records this, and what Moses is going to tell them is that the power that I'm operating in is superior to the power and the dark powers and the arts of these magicians, magi, uh, you know, these uh, uh, sorcerers. So that's the point. Uh, I also have shared with you that, you know, we, we had a missionary in Haiti for years, Brother Stenio Capri. He just recently died this last year. And uh, Brother Capri would come back telling about some of the things they would do with voodoo and uh, some of the things that happened in some of those ceremonies. And it was really hard for me to get my mind around that. And you've probably seen uh, documentaries on that, uh, people who act like they're zombies and uh, people who are shaped shifting into different forms and uh, I, I still have a hard time getting my mind around that but I do know the enemy does have a lot of power and so we have to understand that God's power is superior to the power of the enemy 
So in chapter 7, we have the beginning of the Egyptian plagues. And there are 10 plagues, and most of you know that. So what is the significance of 10 plagues? Why aren't there seven? Why aren't there eight? Why aren't there two? So I I did a little biblical um, study of the significance of the number 10. How many of you know numbers in the Bible mean something? So the number 10 seems to indicate authority, completeness, and order. So let's look at several things here that maybe you haven't thought of, and some of them that I hadn't thought of. So let's look at some tens. There is the Ten Commandments. A tithe is what? A tenth or ten percent. The families were to choose their Passover lamb on the tenth day of the first month. Ten generations passed between Adam and Noah. Then God destroyed the earth with the flood. Ten generations were between Noah and Abraham. The Lord would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous people found in those cities. Abraham's servant took ten camels when he searched for a wife for Isaac, and that's Rebekah. Then Rebekah stayed with her family ten days after deciding to marry Isaac and then left with that servant back to meet Isaac. Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times before he could marry any of Laban's daughters. Jacob's ten brothers went down to buy food in Egypt. The tabernacle in the wilderness was made with ten curtains with ten sockets, and that was the construct of the uh, outside of the tabernacle. The cherubim, or the angels, that covered the ark in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple were ten cubits high with a wingspan of ten cubits, five with each wing. The brazen sea outside the temple was ten cubits wide from brim to brim. The brazen sea rested on ten bases of brass. There were ten lavers or wash basins of brass. The brazen altar was ten cubits high. Boy, there's a lot of tens in here, isn't there? It's, it's amazing. There were ten golden candlesticks in the temple, five on the right, five on the left. Hezekiah's sundial shadow went backwards 10 degrees for a sign. You remember when he said, you know, uh, get your house in order because you're going to die? And Hezekiah pleaded for the Lord, you know, give me more years. And the Lord said, I'll, I'll give you more years. Okay, you said that, but what's the sign? Well, the shadow on the sundial went back 10 degrees. And so that was the sign. You know, why, why not 5 degrees or 3 or 10, whatever. 10 days, King Nebuchadnezzar found Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ten times wiser and better than all the other magi, magicians, and astrologers in his Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar had a vision and a dream about a beast and an image with ten toes representing the last kingdom, kingdoms in control at Jesus' coming. Daniel's beast had ten horns representing the ten kings. Jesus healed ten men of leprosy, sent them to the priests. Jesus used the number 10 in several of his parables, the 10 virgins, 10 talents, the woman who lost a piece of silver, she had 10 pieces, lost one, and then Revelation 12 and 3, the dragon has 10 horns, 10 crowns on the, the horns, Revelation 13, 1, which is uh, reflecting back to Daniel's beast that had 10 horns. A lot, lot of 10s in the Bible. 
And I found that very interesting that the number 10 was also the number of plagues. So uh, tonight we're gonna not, get, not going to get through all these, but let's just take the first plagues. So the first plague, Moses and Aaron, you know, tell uh, Pharaoh, let my people go. He's not going to let them go. Then the Lord speaks to Moses to go down to the river Nile and take that rod and to dip it in the water, and the water obviously turns into blood. So that is the first plague. So the Lord really has, I think, two different motives here. One is to show him uh, that you are going to let my people go. That's Pharaoh. I'm going to let him know that he is going to let them go. And the second thing is to show his power superior to the gods of the Egyptians. And I, I've never done, done this in-depth study on this, even though, you know, kind of knew this. So one of the things that we have to realize, the Nile River was such an important part of Egypt that Egypt would not have been Egypt if it hadn't been for the Nile and the Delta and all the water. So it was the live stream of the Egyptian people for their farming, irrigating the, their crops, the annual flooding, which fertilized and brought the silt and the nutrients uh, from Africa up to that area. And it was their drinking water, it was fishing, it was transportation. If you've ever watched a documentary uh, you know, piece on building the pyramids and some of the statues and things, they would actually quarry the, the stone somewhere else. They would put it on boats and they would bring it into those locations. So that's how important the, uh, the Nile is. So he, he begins with the, the waters of the Nile and then it extends to the other waters. So let me give you some names of Egyptian gods. Um, Apis, Isis, uh, Kunum, uh, Hapi, and I'm probably not pronouncing all of these uh, correctly. But the first one is the god of the Nile. Isis is the goddess of the Nile. Uh, Kunum is the guardian of the Nile or god of the waters. And, and H-A-P-I, Hapi, uh, god of the annual flooding of the Nile. And so the Nile also was believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn every year at the flooding of the river. So I put some pictures up, and if you will look at those, these are actually some of the renditions of these Egyptian gods. And many of you have, have seen these pictures. So um, Apis is the, uh, the bull with the disc between the horns, and then we have Isis. And uh, next slide, you're going to see Kanum uh, uh, and H-A-P-I, uh, Hapi. And so these are renditions of those gods. And those gods were to protect the waters of the Nile and to protect the waters of Egypt. And uh, so what happened is they could not protect what they were supposed to protect because the God of Moses and the God of the Hebrews now is superior to the gods of the Egyptians. How many of you getting what God's doing here? So they're trusting in their gods. They, they have a pantheon of gods, if you will. And so now the God that Moses represents, Jehovah, I am that I am, He's going to show them that the Egyptian gods cannot protect 
the things of the Egyptians from what he's about to do. It's, it's very, very, very real and evident what's happening here. So this is verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch it out in your hand over the waters of, of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood, pitchers of stone. So if, if you had a, um, a pitcher of water in your uh, GE fridge, it turned into blood in Egypt. Uh, as Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded, he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Listen, if it was bad on day one, how bad was it on day seven? Now, if it was blood, I'm sure it congealed some. I'm sure it stunk horribly, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that were attracted to that blood, and so it was a mess, and there was nothing they could do to reverse that until that plague had ended. So the first one was right in a, we'd say a broadside shot into one of the most um, important areas of the Egyptian lifestyle, which was the Nile River. Now, in chapter 8, we have the uh, second plague. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. Okay, now let's stop there. Uh, you know, wh wh why not um, something else? Why not weasels? I mean, you know, why frogs? Well, we're going to see here in a minute why frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, on your ovens, into your kneading bowls, and the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. Frogs, frogs everywhere. So th there's no way you're going to keep the frogs out. They're going to be in everything you don't want them to be in. So here he says there's going to be frogs everywhere. Verse 5, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. So why frogs? There is an Egyptian god by the name of Heket, H-E-K-E-T, and we're going to picture, put a picture of this uh, Egyptian god up here. It is a frog-headed goddess who personified birth and fertility. So they actually had a god that was a frog. Not Kermit, but Hekek. So here is an Egyptian 
rendition. You can see it etched and then painted and then a caricature of, of that uh, Egyptian god. So they, they, as I said, they worship many gods. And one of the gods was a frog god. And so now Jehovah, Almighty God, is bringing up a whole bunch of frogs. And uh, frogs that they don't want and frogs in places they don't want. And so there is the picture of their uh, Egyptian god, Hekek, which is a frog. So when we go through each one of these, these plagues, you're going to see that God pinpointed one of their gods at every plague. Um, verse 8, then, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So this is the first time he indicated that he might even let the people of God go. So this is the first thing. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you, your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he says, Okay. Um, I, I accept your request here. I'm going to ask the Lord to remove them, and they're going to leave the land. They're going to go back into the river. And so he asked the question, when do you want me to do this to get rid of the frogs? Verse 10. So he said, tomorrow. Duh. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says about this time tomorrow. So there have been thousands of sermons preached, and this is the title of the sermon. One more night with the frogs. So he asked a direct question. When do you want me to get rid of the frogs? And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. How many of you would have said, how about right now? So let's, let's take a little life lesson from this. How many people are in a bad situation, and they're going to put off getting in a better situation tomorrow why don't you start today today would be a good day to start making the change making the effort making the steps whatever it is so you know we have this propensity as humans let's just put it off let, let, let's procrastinate a little bit because we all want to sleep with the frogs one more night one more night with the frogs can you believe he said tomorrow I mean listen this this is you know not Annie singing here. And he said, let it be according to your word, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people. They shall remain only in the river. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the words of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Let me tell you, every time this happens, there was some stench that happened with it. The blood stank. When you got frogs everywhere and they die, guess what? The frogs stink. They gathered them together in heaps. The land stank. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now we're going to move. We have about 15 minutes left, so let's, uh, let's just kind of go into the next one here. The third plague. Now, a couple of things happened here. 
the last plague that we just talked about, the frogs, we, we did have Pharaoh indicate that he would let them go. Then he reneged on his uh, offer. He, he went backwards with it. The third plague is uh, found in verse 16, and this is the plague of the lice or the gnats. So depending on what translation you have, some say lice, some say gnats. So whatever it is, it's not going to be good. Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land or the dust of the earth, depending on what translation you have, so that it may become lice or gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All of the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now I want to stop there just for a moment. You know, we, we raise cattle. And beginning in the spring and certainly throughout the summer up until uh, early fall, you know, we have to treat our cattle because of, of, of lice, ticks, and flies, and internal grubs, things of that nature. So... Uh, has anyone ever heard of ivermectin through COVID? So that's actually what we use on cattle. It, it kills not only externally, but internally, uh, the parasites. Also, we, we just did this about two weeks ago. We put tags in the back of the cattle's ear that are treated with chemicals that also uh, you know, repel the, the lice, the, the flies, the ticks, and things of that nature. Because if you ever seen cattle that, uh, and even if you treat them, they do this. I mean, they're covered in flies, and their tail is switching all the time. And uh, cattle can do this. They can actually uh, have saliva in mass amounts in their, their mouth, and they throw their head, and they cover their back with streams of saliva, to cover and kill the parasites and the flies. Um, this is very interesting tonight, isn't it? About, uh, but it, it just—I mean, it just—it wears them out. I mean, they're—they're they're running. You ever seen them stand in water? If you drive by in a pond and there's a bunch of cattle standing in the water for two reasons: number one, they're trying to cool off if it's very hot, and secondly, they're trying to keep the hill flies and the different things off of them if they stand in the water. And sometimes you go out and look at the cows, and the only thing you see is their head just sticking up out of the water because they get relief from the heat and the flies and the parasites and different things. So imagine what it would have been like. Now, this is not just with cattle or, or animals. I mean, we're talking about lice, and we're talking about gnats. We're talking about these things that have swarmed these people. And th this is not just a small event. This is a plague. And now Egypt is completely covered. I mean, you, you probably have seen whether it would be uh, locusts or different insects coming in, you know, in plague-like proportions, which nearly black out the sun. And I'm sure this is reminiscent of that, uh, the plagues of Egypt here. Now, the reason I stopped there is because th th this is huge, and verse 18 brings us into another kind of a paradigm here. Now, the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice or gnats, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. 
Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Or some translations say this is an act of God. Now, what they're saying is that we cannot replicate this any longer. You know, there's certain things we can do. We, 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 can, we have some kind of power. We, we can do some things. But now at the third plague, they said, uh, Pharaoh, you're on your own now. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't duplicate this. We, we can't replicate this. Um, we're, we're dealing with something that's beyond our power, beyond what we are used to deal, dealing with here. So they, they call it the finger of God, or this is the act of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Now, let's go to another Egyptian god, G-E-D-B, G-E-B, uh, Geb. And uh, you've probably seen some of these uh, iconic-type uh, caricatures or paintings or inscriptions and if you've seen this guy or gal, I don't know if he's a guy or a gal, um, I think he's a guy, uh, with a goose on his head. And a lot of the uh, engravings, the carvings, the statues have this uh, Egyptian god. Now, he is also the god of the earth. And if you notice the passage, the rod struck the earth and from the earth, this horrific plague emanated. So the, the Egyptian god who's supposed to control the earth and the dust of the earth can't control it because Jehovah God now has overridden his power. And now this plague doesn't come from the water, you know, as the blood and the frogs did. Now this comes from the earth. And now this Egyptian god who's supposed to be over the earth uh, can't control what Jehovah's doing, and now Jehovah, again, is uh, superior to the gods of Egypt. Now, what we're going to study the next time is, as we go through these plagues, each one is really intentionally uh, going to show the superior of God to the gods of the Egyptians. So when, when God gets finished, and there are verses that's going to say this, that, that he is overcome the gods of the Egyptians, now, we don't see it actually in the plagues, but we do see it in other passages later. And so there, there's two things. Number one, if you go back with me and track backward a little bit, the, the Egyptians at the beginning don't believe that what Moses is doing is real. They're not going to let the people of, of, of God go. The Hebrews aren't going to go. And now the Hebrews have an issue also with these things that are happening uh, Moses coming back to say, you know, I'm going to show signs and wonders. And then they confront Moses and say, let me tell you what you're doing. You're making this worse on us. So there are really two groups that need to be convinced. It's not only just the Egyptians, but it's even God's own people. Folks, I, I want to give you a little commentary on the church world today. There's a whole bunch of people that are saying they're Christians. They don't believe in the power of God either. They don't believe in the miraculous power of God. Um, we call them cessationists. They believe all those things stopped back when you know, the apostles all died. They, they believe that those signs and wonders and miracles that you know, people can do or uh, be a part of or God can do through people, they, they don't believe that. Uh, they believe that is uh, you know, false or you know, something that's nefarious. But 
here God is going to have to convince not only the Egyptians, he's going to have to convince his own people of who he is. And he says, I'm going to show you with signs and wonders and miracles, and that's what the Lord is doing. So most of the time we just think he's just trying to convince the Egyptians. But I think he's also trying to convince his own people, I am a powerful, miracle-working, wonders and signs type God because I create everything and whatever needs to be done beyond the natural, which is now the supernatural, he's saying that's the kind of God that I am. How many of you know you serve a supernatural God? And I don't know why people can't, you know, grasp that. And Let me get on my soapbox just a little bit. Y'all okay? It's amazing that I find people who go to churches that don't believe in the supernatural, the power of God, but when they get into trouble, they call us. I mean, listen, in 40-something years of ministry, uh, I can't tell you how many people said, well, I know y'all believe in miracles. I know y'all believe in healing, so would y'all pray? And I'm thinking, well, get out of the church that doesn't believe it. But they'll stay in that and in unbelief, but they'll call you to pray for them for a miracle. Duh. I don't get it, but. Our God is a miracle-working God. Now, I think maybe some people's uh, uh, aversion to some of this is because there has been a lot of charlatans that have said that they have the power to do a lot of things, and obviously um, they are disingenuous, and, and so we have to watch out for that. But uh, let me tell you, uh, God is the miracle-working God. Sometimes he does use people, but if he does use people, how many of you know they didn't do the miracle? God did the miracle. You with me? And so now the Lord is saying, I am going to show Pharaoh, and I want to show my people who I am. I am the God who is. I am the God who was. I am the God who shall be. I am that I am. I am Jehovah. I am the existing one. You don't know where I came from. You don't, my, don't know my beginning. You don't know my ending. Let me give you a different version of that in the New Testament. I am the Alpha. I'm the Omega. I was at the beginning, I'll be at the ending. And if he's, you know, Alpha and Omega is actually the A and the Z of the alphabet then. He's saying, I'm at the beginning, I'm at the ending, and how many of you know he's the L-M-N-O-P in the beginning and the middle too? So, so uh, I mean, he, he's, just, he's just complete. So this is what's happening. These are the first three plagues, and now we have we have reached an impasse with the, uh, the, the, the magicians of the, uh, the Egyptians. They say no longer can we track with this God because he is superior to our power. And God is saying, I'm also superior to all the gods of the Egyptians. So that's, that's what he's doing. And he's liberating his people through these signs and wonders. Well, let's stand. Thank you for being here tonight. Hope you got a little different version or perspective on some of the things that happened in the book of Exodus. And uh, very, very interesting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Thank you for your word. And God, we pray that we receive something good tonight, some information that uh, we can live our life by, that you are with us and you're powerful and you know everything and you are our God, and we are your people. And God, bless your people as they leave. Bless their tomorrow. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap. God bless you. And we'll see you Sunday. We are so thankful you joined us today. 
We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.